0: We are looking for our teaching tonight at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, and then I've tacked on there also, verses 21 to 23. Again, I'm going to have it on the screen and read through it here once for you. If you'd like to make sure that you have a, a hand in it and I can reference it later on your own, just uh, grab that pew Bible uh, that's underneath, underneath your chairs right now and you can follow along there as well or follow on your phones. Here's Exodus 12 beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. And the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, And put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamps. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, the legs, and the internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. One of the things, you'll just notice how specific this all is because everything means something. Okay? On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both of the sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. There ends our lesson. All right. Um, We've come to the culmination of the 10 plagues. And last week, we touched on the plagues just at the beginning um, in kind of an overview. But the 10 plagues have something special connected to them, and that is the, uh, the special meal. The meal is called the Passover meal, and interestingly enough, God says that he is going to uh, have the Israelites celebrate this every year moving forward. In other words, he doesn't wait until it happens, and a year later have a special meal by which they commemorate what has happened. He very intentionally, before anything even happens, he says, okay, whatever is about to happen is so special that I'm going to have you celebrate a meal right now, and every subsequent year, you're going to remind yourselves of what has happened. And that Passover meal is really moving forward the center of all Jewish worship in the same way that the Lord's Supper is essentially central to Christian worship. And at both of those centers of their worship, they have the same basic thing, which is what? A slaughtered lamb. Now, I need you to see that's unusual and that's unique and it's counterintuitive. So if anybody ever asks you, you know, the question of, oh, I don't see what the big deal is about Christianity. It's just one religion amongst all the other religions in the world out there. Uh, they all have morality. They all have a higher power. They all have an afterlife and so on and so forth. One of the things that you can tell them is, no, they're not all the same. Uh, the one I believe in, in Christianity, at the center of it is a slaughtered lamb. No other religion has anything really like that. In fact, I would maybe make the case that's arguably, I know we use the cross as the first image of Christianity, a slaughtered lamb is just as good. Um, That's unique because it's counterintuitive. It seems weak. It seems powerless. It seems like um, failure, but it's power and it's life and it's victory. And really, everything in the New Testament, you look at every New Testament writer from Paul to Peter to John to Philip, all of them look at that Passover lamb and they, they, see, they don't use this word. Theologians use the word a type. Type is something that is not an end in and of itself, but it's an Old Testament image that very clearly is designed under the Spirit's inspiration to point the head to something even greater than what's actually happening. And the slaughtered lamb is mentioned by all the New Testament writers as a type of Messiah. In other words, the fulfillment of what takes place in that Passover meal ultimately can only be taught and only be found in Jesus Christ. And not only do those Old Testament sacrificial lambs point forward, but when you get to Jesus in the New Testament, see, Jesus in his teaching, for instance, at uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'm thinking specifically here like Luke 9, he is talking to his uh, closest inner circle of disciples, and right there on the Mount of Transfiguration are also some other famous characters in the Bible, like the great Old Testament prophet Elijah and the great deliverer Moses. And at one specific point, Jesus turns to Moses, and the, what the Greek says is he starts talking about the, the Greek word is his Exodus. It's literally the word Exodus. Now, what that means, what very clearly is saying is look, Moses. What you did back there 1500 years ago in Egypt and the deliverance of my people from oppression and slavery through the sacrificial lamb and underneath its blood, I'm, gonna about, I'm about to do the exact same thing, except I'm gonna be doing it in an even more spectacular fashion. And therefore, essentially the theme of the Bible, and I need you to see this tonight the theme of the Bible is the slaughtered lamb, okay? Um, sometimes we, what we do is we take a text and we peel it apart in as many chunks as possible and sort of dissect it. Another way to approach uh, a teaching in Scripture is to take a central theme of Scripture and take that thread and see how it weaves all the way through Scripture. And that's what I want to do tonight with this concept of the slaughtered lamb. And so let's start all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that Adam and Eve famously fall into sin, and immediately after they fall into sin, do you remember what their first instinct to do is? The first thing that they think to do is they start looking for fig leaves to sew together to cover up their nakedness. Remember in the Bible, nakedness is not just nudity. Nakedness is vulnerability and it's shame. And so they're, they're sewing together these fig leaves to cover over their shame and their vulnerability, their nakedness, But, you know, even in and of itself, a metaphor is right there because, you know, any attempts humans make to cover over their nakedness, to cover over their shame and to secure their vulnerability, it doesn't work. And Adam and Eve just aren't smart enough to figure that out at this point. See, they're going to, they don't understand death yet. And within a matter of a couple days, those fig leaves are going to wilt and it's going to expose everything. And man-made attempts to cover over our shame and vulnerability don't work. God has to intervene. And remember, God comes to them and he intervenes and he, he, he intervenes sufficiently and permanently and graciously. Sufficiently, permanently, and graciously because he provides for them what the Genesis 3 text says is garments of skin. Now here's why this is maybe the most debatable point here. He doesn't say this is lamb's skin. But if I had to take a guess, I'll bet you it's lamb's or ram's skin that he covers them with. And he sufficiently and permanently covers them. Even if it's not lamb skim, the point is the same. God stepped in to deliver humans from what they did wrong and what they could not remedy themselves. Now, you keep moving forward in the book of Genesis and you get to Genesis 22, and it's a famous story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is the father of faith and the father of the Israelite nation. And um, remember, in the middle of the night, God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only dearly loved son, the son that you waited a hundred years for, the son of the promise, and I want you to take him up onto this place that I will show you, Mount Moriah, and slaughter him as a sacrifice to me. Abraham gets up the next day and he does it. And he's willing to do it. He's willing to go there. And, and you know, modern people think that sounds so bizarre. Like, why, why would God command that, number one? And number two, why would Abraham comply with that without any kind of resistance. And see, one of the things that culturally speaking, modern people don't tend to get is in the ancient Near East, there's this law of something called primogeniture, which is the special blessing attached to the firstborn son in every family. Uh, The firstborn son in each household was like the seed of the hopes and dreams and vision and security of the future for the family. Everybody in the ancient Near East knew that. And in fact, God's people also knew because he had told them numerous times that the firstborn of all your household, and that includes the firstborn, uh, the first of the fields that you bring in, it includes the first of your cattle that are born, and it includes the firstborn in your own family. That all belongs to God. And see, when, let me look at it like this. If God had come to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to go into your tent and kill your wife, Sarah, Abraham would have said, "Uh, I'm not doing that, God. That would be wicked and terrible and evil. I I cannot do such a thing like that. But when God says, I want you to slaughter your firstborn son, Abraham doesn't push back at all because he knows that firstborn belongs to God in the first place. And God has every right to cash in on the firstborn whenever whenever he chooses. And so Abraham, in faith, moves forward with his son. They ascend up Mount Sinai and as, as they're trekking up the mountain, Isaac, who has been taught to worship God, understands sacrifices, and he uh, he looks around and he's like, "Dad, we've got everything necessary for a sacrifice, but where is the lamb?" And Abraham says, oh, "My son, the Lord Himself somehow will provide the lamb." Sure enough, they get to the top of the mountain. They build their altar. They stretch out Isaac and tie him down on that altar. Abraham takes the knife, he raises his hand, he's about to kill that son and God intervenes and he says, don't do it because now I know something that I didn't know before. Now I know that you love me more than anything or anyone else in this world because you have not withheld from me your son, your only dearly loved son. And at that exact same moment, God provides in a nearby thicket a ram lamb, That is caught by the horns and Abraham takes that substitute and he places it on the altar and he slaughters the ram lamb. So what you see already, what we've learned about this lamb concept is, one, somehow God covers us with the skins of some kind of slaughtered creature, slaughtered lamb. And number two, uh, God uses a slaughtered lamb as a substitute sacrifice in our place. Now, number three, you get to the text that we are looking at here this evening, Exodus 12, the Passover event. And what's going on there? Remember, it's the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt is going to lead to the most wailing and uh, catastrophic event in the history of Egypt. Never will there be another thing like this. But God says, again, at this moment, I want to… help you remember this and understand what it means. And so he says, first of all, your whole life moving forward is going to be prioritized around this. I want you to change your calendar. This is going to be the first month for you. And your whole life, your whole year revolves around this slaughtered lamb and this Passover event now, okay? And the next thing I want you to do is I want you to take a one-year-old male without defect in your flocks. It can be, it can be any kind of quadruped. So it can be a, a lamb or a goat. Take your choice. And you slaughter it and you consume it as a family. It's supposed to be a communal meal, a household meal, See, I don't know if you caught what we read earlier, but it said, okay, approximate how much each of you are going to eat and then eat it as a household. And in there is some kind of teaching about, you know, you can't do a relationship with God on your own. People try, but, you know, faith is personal and faith is individual, but it's always expressed communally. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from having a relationship with God's people. It can't be done. Even in this Passover meal, it's a communal community household kind of thing. In fact, in generations moving forward, whenever you celebrate this, the parents are required to teach their little kids what happened back in Egypt when God graciously and miraculously provided for us to deliver us from the oppression that we faced by our enemies. Okay, well, it's not only the lamb, though. they are also supposed to prepare these bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And the bitter herbs are representative of the bitterness of the oppression that they faced in Egypt. And the unleavened bread is, see, in the Jewish mind, leaven was a, a symbolic of, like, evilness that spreads quickly. And they were to be a people without any leaven. They were to be an unleavened, purified, set-apart kind of people. And for that matter, it also represents urgency, Because it takes a while for the bread to rise and what God has said to Moses and the Israelites is, tomorrow morning, when you get up, Pharaoh is not just going to let you leave, he's going to demand that you leave and you need to be ready to roll immediately. And therefore, you don't got time for the bread to rise. You have to live with urgency and something in there for God's people is like, yeah, you live every day as though God comes back tonight and you are ready to roll tomorrow. Your life is unleavened, okay? Um, not only that, so there's the sheep uh, or the lamb and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs but there's another piece to this and he says specifically I want you to take the blood of the lamb. And did you catch what they're supposed to do with that? So they take this uh, local plant at the time called hyssop which is like this flimsy little reed. And I'm going to get to this under our application section. It's this flimsy little reed. They dip it in this basin of the blood that was from the slaughtered lamb and they smear it on the door frame. And that way, when the judgment of God finally comes down in the middle of the night, see, they're not allowed to leave their houses until dawn. And when the judgment of God comes down, he's going to see the blood and he's going to pass over the houses that are spared because they are resting safely under the blood of the unblemished sacrificial lamb. See? All that's in there. You continue to move forward in the Old Testament and you get to one of the most famous chapters, a chapter that we read every Easter, Isaiah chapter 53, maybe the most famous chapter in Isaiah, it's the suffering servant chapter. And there the prophet Isaiah compares God's people to sheep, it's not a flattering comparison, But he says, we wander off, we're foolish. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But then he turns on a dime and he says, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in the very next verse, he says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And you get the point here, right? In the suffering servant chapter, like very clearly he says that this servant is a human being. It's a person, but he's voluntarily getting treated like a sacrificial lamb. Okay? You get to the last prophet of the Old Testament, whom we actually find in the New Testament because he's the forerunner of Christ. His name is John the Baptist. And the first time he sees Jesus when he enters into public ministry, his bizarre phrase is, look, it's the... Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then you get to the night before Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus is celebrating of all possible meals. Of course, it's the Passover meal before his crucifixion and he celebrates it with his disciples in the upper upper room but then he gives the unleavened bread to his disciples and he refers to it as his body and he gives the blood to his disciples and he refers to it as his, sorry, the wine and he refers to it as his blood. But very intentionally and very clearly, he's withholding from that Passover meal to the Lord's Supper, he's withholding the lamb and the bitter herbs. Why? Because the very next morning, he's going to carry that lamb to the cross to take away the bitterness of all of our sins. And that's what he does. And then you get to the end of the Bible. The last chapter, excuse me, the last book of the Bible, is a vision that is received from the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, the last of the living apostles. And he gets this sight about what the end of the world is going to look like and what it says that he sees is, in chapter 5, verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, the next thing says, all creation sees him, falls down, and worships him. So, the big idea is, do you see that the slaughtered lamb is the teaching of the entire Bible? Did you find that? You see that? It's really important because when you understand that, what does it look like for your life to be centered around a slaughtered lamb? What does it, what does it mean that you live with the the significance of a slaughtered lamb at the center of your life everything that i said earlier about the appearance of weakness and the humility and the appearance of failure and defeat but in actuality it's serving the lord and glorifying god and worshiping god all of that there are a thousand implications attached to that i'm not going to give you a thousand i'll give you three okay number one we must apply the blood now you notice the Jews were saved by the blood of the lamb if they actually applied the blood to their doorframes. They didn't just get saved by participating in the Passover meal. Um, let me put this a different way. If you, as a Jew, decided to participate in the meal and stayed in the home and did everything by that but you didn't end up applying the blood of the sacrificial lamb to your doorframe, the firstborn son in your household dies. You're not saved. And the application very clearly here is God's people have to apply the blood of Jesus Christ. You have to apply the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Now, what does that mean? It means it's not enough to know who Jesus is. We've, we've talked about this before. In James chapter 2, James says, yes, all the demons know exactly who the Messiah is. Some of the best confessions of the, the, the Christ character of Jesus Christ in the Gospels are actually given by demons, They know who he is. Lots of people know who he is. That doesn't do anything. He is who he is. He makes himself known very well, knowing that he is. Jesus says on the last day, many are going to come to me and identify me as Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, yeah, I don't know you. Okay? So what's the difference? Lots of people know about him and lots of people know about his sacrifice, but not everybody applies the blood. What does it mean then to apply the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, It's not enough to say that Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. You have to say Jesus came to be my Savior, because I desperately needed saving because I was so lost. And I'll be honest with anybody about how lost I was. It's not enough to say Jesus came and paid for the sins of the world. Did He come and pay for the sins of the world? Yes, He came and paid for the sins of the world. But that's not applying the. You have to say Jesus came and paid for all of my sins and you would not believe the debt that I owe and the damages that I've caused. And Jesus paid for all of it specifically for me. It's not enough to say God so loved the world. Does it say God so loved the world? Yes, but to apply the blood means you have to say, you have to have the confidence God so loved me to such an extent that even if not another single person on planet earth had ever sinned, God still would have sent his son into the world to pay just for my sins because he loves me personally that much. So you got to apply the blood like that. However, let me finish this point up by saying although you have to apply the blood in order for it to be your own, which is another way of saying you have to have faith. Well, While salvation does require some application of Christ's blood, it's worth noting that even a flimsy and imperfect application of that blood counts. Now, I don't think I've ever noticed this point until I studied it this week. But again, the specific plant that God ordered that the Israelites apply the blood to their doorframes with is something called hyssop. Now, if you wikipedia what hyssop is, which is what exactly, exactly what I did, uh, as well as reading some commentaries on it, you're going to see it's this long, flimsy, weak, blows in the wind, uh, relatively breakable type of plant. Now, what does that mean? You have to apply the blood, but what did they apply the blood with? You know, sometimes our faith is not nearly as strong as we know it should be. In fact, sometimes our faith is embarrassingly flimsy, but you are not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. You're not saved by the beautiful application of the blood in your life, even though you, should, you have to apply the blood. You're not saved by the, the brilliance of the application of that blood. You're, you're saved because of the power that is in the blood that you apply. You catch it? Okay, so you have to personally apply what Christ, the sacrificial lamb, has done. But number two, you have to stay under that blood. What does that mean? Well, you'll notice one of God's very specific commands in here, and there's a ton of them, is he says you're not allowed to leave the house until the Passover is over, until the next day at dawn. Nobody can leave the house. In other words, let me put this a little bit differently. It's it's very easy to get the false impression that God's judgment was primarily against the nation of Egypt or the Egyptians or Pharaoh in this text. That's not the most accurate or correct way of saying it. Why? It makes God sound almost uh, nationalistic or racist. Uh, the, The Egyptians weren't dying. Their firstborn weren't dying because they were Egyptian. And the Israelites weren't saved because they were Israelite. In fact, that becomes a problem for God's people throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament where they, th- they, they try to find shelter in their Jewishness. See, if you, were, if you were a Jew on that night and you went through the whole Passover meal and you even applied the blood to your doorframe, but you ran out of the house that night and even you did some kind of religious ceremony like you prayed to God, the firstborn in that house is still going to die that night. Why? Because you don't ever get out from underneath the blood of the Lamb. That is the only way you survive. For you to be saved, you have to stay put and let God do his job. In other words, the moment the moment that you step out and try to do something yourself and try to contribute and try to give God a boost and try to like human pride always wants to do something by which we can hang our hats on, by which we think we're deserving of God's love, acceptance, and blessing in our salvation. You can't do that. You have to be still and stay under the sacrificial lamb. You have to stay under that blood all night. Um, That's in part, it feels counterintuitive. It feels like, you know, why some, not others? We have to do something. We have to contribute something, don't we? No, it's as counterintuitive as like The angel of death is coming down tonight in a catastrophic judgment and the thing that's going to save you is this adorable little fluffy little lamb. Like that seems counterintuitive, right? Because it's the gospel. And the gospel is in fact counterintuitive. It requires me to say, I need saving. I can't save myself, but Jesus loves me enough that he can and he did. Now, Uh, non-religious people can't say the first one, I need saving. Irreligious people don't say that. Religious people say the first one, I need saving, but they also can't say the second one, I can't save myself. God's people, true believers, those who have applied the blood of Christ have to say and can say, I need saving, I can't save myself, but God so loved me that he can and he did. Okay? It's Be still under his blood. And only look to him for your salvation. And the third part. This is the most, uh, if you're going to say, what's the action step that I have to take in this? It's probably the third application point. Shedding some blood brings, I don't know why there's an apostrophe in brings there, but <laughs> shedding some blood brings, uh, I, <laughs> no, it's, it was my fault, Martin, don't worry. Uh, it's just my mistakes. Anyways, uh, it brings God's grace into the world. And here's what I mean. Very clearly in this text, it's teaching substitutionary atonement, a substitute thing that makes someone right. Um, in very simple terms, in every household that night, something or someone died. It was, you didn't have a choice as to whether or not something would die. You just had a choice of what or whom would die. So it's either going to be a son, the firstborn son, or it's going to be a lamb. Those are your options. Because when sin enters into the world, something's broken and it needs to be paid for. There's no option of not making payment. A payment has to be made. It's just which, who's going to pay, okay? It's either the firstborn son or it's the, the dead lamb. To save your life, now there's a universal principle in here. To save life, you've got to kill life. To raise life up, you've got to lay life down. Everybody intuitively understands this principle. We've talked about this point before, but the the simplest explanation is when you're a parent. Because, you know, in order to bring a child into the world, and the goal is, as a parent, to raise the child up into independence and into adulthood, you have to lay down your life. For at least, you know, 18, maybe 20, 25 years. I don't know, it's getting older all the time. But for at least 18 years, to bring a child up into adulthood, you have to lay down your life. Now, if you don't, Guess what happens? If you don't sacrifice time or energy or money or care or uh, some, maybe some career aspirations or some travel plans or whatever else and you don't sacrifice for the child, social services are going to come and take that child away from you because that's negligence and that's abuse. The only way to raise a child up is to lay your life down. This is a universal principle of life, okay? And what God has said at the Passover And ultimately, throughout that slaughtered lamb message in all of scripture, because of what Jesus did, he so loved us that he laid down his life in our place. And what that means is he died to forgive all of our sins. He gifted to us all of his righteousness. He prepared a place for us in heaven for all eternity. And he has sent his spirit so that he will never leave us and he'll give us every single thing that we need along the way. In other words, look at it like this. For God to get his grace into the world to you, what did it require? There's one instrument. The agent was Jesus, but the instrument was a cross. And it always works that way. For God to get his grace into the world to you, the agent was Jesus and the instrument was his cross. Now, Jesus has ascended into heaven, but since he's already taken care of you and me for all eternity, what is your and my mission in life moving forward? It's very clear, but arguably very painful. What do you think Jesus means when he says, I want you to, if you're going to follow after me, pick up your cross and follow me? God still wants to get his grace out into the world. The agents that he has left on earth is you and me. And what instrument does he have to use to do it? An altar, a cross, cost, sacrifice, blood. I don't know that God can get his grace into the lives of others in the world unless you are willing to bleed a little bit for them. And that's my mission as Christians in the world, to voluntarily make sacrifices at the cost and sometimes throughout history at the cost of life to ourselves in order to bring more sons and daughters into the household before the judgment comes down. Now, The lesson is, Christ Jesus, obviously, I I, I spent the first 20 minutes just saying, he obviously became the ultimate lamb in our place to rescue us. But the mission of life moving forward is, just, just think of some person. Don't think of trying to save the world or anything like that. Just think of one person in your life here tonight. One person that God is asking you to be some form of lesser lamb to right now. Let's ask God to bless that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb who was slain in our place for our sins and we will spend all eternity worshiping you for this. We've already seen the future through the eyes of John. Our future is with you in heaven in worship. But right now, our mission is something similar. Guide us in knowing and living what it means to have the slaughtered lamb at the center of our lives. Lord Jesus, may it be to the glory of your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.